to do that makes him who he is. You can't linger at the manger long before you have to go to Golgotha. You have to go to Calvary. And like we get that. Like the value of Christmas presents is not the fact that they're under the tree. Like think about the greatest Christmas present you could possibly receive in two weeks. A car, house, I don't know, a proposal, whatever it might be. All right, a gift that is mind-blowing, but the only caveat is it has to stay under the tree. And who would want that? The thing that makes Christmas presents so great is not just that they're under the tree, that they've arrived, but it's that then you take that present and you put it on. You drive it, you wear it, you spend it, you eat it. You marry it if you get a proposal on Christmas Day. Whatever it is, it's that you get to enjoy the present. It's not just that Jesus came, it's what he came to do. The joy of the baby in the manger was that he went to the cross. And we see this in this passage today as clearly as any passage in Scripture. Beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we are overwhelmed at what this passage tells us. The very foundation of our faith. The very root teaching of the gospel that Jesus came to give his life to set us free. So speak this truth to our hearts today and do deep fruit bearing work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. We talk a lot in the crossing about identity leading to mission and lifestyle. Who we are precedes what we do. And with some of the 
obvious teaching about humility and greatness in this passage, we might be tempted to run quickly to that. Here's what the disciples did that we shouldn't do. Here's what we should do instead. And that would work. But this is such a high and lofty image of Jesus and the purpose of his coming that I really want to begin there and spend most of our time there because I think and pray and hope that what happens in you through seeing the purpose of Jesus' coming, that once the Spirit will, will speak to your heart through that and capture your heart, then the reality of who we're supposed to be will naturally flow from that. Once we see and fully embrace and are captivated by the fact that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, well, yeah, then that's how we live. We live as servants. We live in humility. And the high point, one of the mountaintop theological truths is found in verse 45. Again, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A verse that John Piper says is what turns Christianity into the gospel. A verse that shows the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his coming as a baby, that he would die and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when we think of ransom, we mainly think of someone being kidnapped, and then they send a ransom letter to their family, and the family has to come up with a certain amount of money to set that person free. And that's essentially the idea, except probably without the kidnapping. In the first century, a Jewish Greco-Roman culture, uh, someone who does this, what this word ransom, which means to loose, does, is they take someone who's a, a slave or a prisoner, they pay a price so that slave or prisoner can go free. And Jesus came to die. That was the price he paid to purchase the freedom of slaves and those in bondage. You see this expressed in other passages like Galatians 4, 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Set us free from slavery to be adopted as family. 1 Peter 1, 18-21, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, we were ransomed, what? Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We who are slaves and prisoners to sin by nature, so it's how we're born, no one has to teach us to chase sin. Like my son, 18 months old, 19 months old, maybe 20 now, I don't know. He, has, in the last few months, like we're beginning to see this, this, this uh, tension within his mind. Like here's, clearly what mom and dad want me to do and here's clearly what I want to do and you can almost see the battle waging in his mind like one of the things we've had to work over the last couple of months is him coming in the house he loves to be outside so it's time to come inside so he will walk up to the threshold of the door and look inside the house and I'm standing there saying come inside son and he's like just looking he's thinking do I really have to how much power do I have here what can I make happen in the, the, the force of my will? Like it's just matriculating through his mind. And, and at first he wouldn't. So we had to bring him inside and discipline him and teach him that this, what dad says, what mom says, this is what you do. And, and thankfully the other day we did the same thing. And he's, he's coming inside like, okay, I, I want to 
be rewarded, not punished by the choices that I make. And 18 months old, we didn't teach him how to do that. As they become little people, they begin to assert their will, and you've got to corral that without crushing their spirit. And, and that's who we are by nature, sinners, but we're also sinners by choice, where we begin to see the joy in sin, and so we chase sin. We are in total bondage, unable to free ourselves, and here comes Jesus to pay the price necessary to set us free, and the price is his life. The price is his death. The most beautiful, perfect human who's ever lived on the face of the earth had to be crucified as a criminal so that we could be free. And some wonder why. Like, why did it have to be like that? Why did Jesus have to pay our ransom with his life? Why couldn't it have been another way? And there's many ways to answer this question. But, but think about it like this. Jesus dying to pay our ransom and set us free was the only way that God could be just and loving. It's the only way God could be just and loving. So go back to the garden. God told our parents, Adam and Eve, to rule over creation with him, to know him, to love him, to to worship him, to be in this intimate relationship where they're walking with God in the cool of the day. And they were enjoying that. He, He gave them all of that to enjoy, including each other, with no shame, no sin, just full freedom to enjoy everything he's created. One rule, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, he says, you will die. If you disobey my one rule, sin, there will be death. And yet you have to think about death in the essence of what death is. Like we think of death, we think these bodies quit working. That's true. But the essence of death is separation. That's why we hate death, because we're separated from the person we love. And so God says, if you sin, you will die, you will be separated, there will be a division. So they, they rebel against God in Genesis 3, they sin, and here comes a division between man and woman. Now their relationship would be full of strife. There was a division between man and creation. Hard work would be, uh, work would be hard and, and laborious. There was a division uh, between man and, and uh, woman and childbearing. Now it would be painful, as many of you can attest to. There's a division between God and man. They could no longer stay in the garden and enjoy the presence of God. They had to leave the garden. They no longer had access to this intimate relationship with God. They were cut off. There was death. Because this all happened because we're sinful. Because God is just and he upholds his commands. God could have rightly and justly allowed us to remain in this separation, this death, and this state of being cut off. Remember, Satan and the angels rebelled against God. A third of them were cast out of heaven. There's no redemption plan for Satan and the angels that rebelled with him. There's no redemption plan for Satan and demonic forces. He could have done that with us. But God had a plan to not only demonstrate his justice, but to demonstrate his love and his grace and mercy. So because he's loving, gracious, and merciful, he, he he, he he could just look at us and say, well, no harm, no foul. Uh, I feel really bad about what you've done, so let's just wipe everything clear and just start over. A lot of people think that. Like, God is loving, so why did he come up with this very gruesome way for Jesus to die? Why did he just, like, have a little happy way for, for us to be reconciled to him? Well, full of rainbows and unicorns and, and flowers and cotton candy, you know? The, no, no death, no blood. That's just God just could, uh, like a Harry Potter magic spell, just whoop, make everything good and okay. 
It's because God is just, because a crime had been committed, because there were guilty people. A judge is not just if he looks at guilty people and says, oh, go free. No big deal. No harm, no foul. That's not a just judge. There had to be a way for God to deal with the crime, the guilt of sin, and still be loving. So how could God the judge do that? How could God let the guilty experience his love? Well, what if he paid the price for the guilty? What if he took on the guilt and punishment himself? What if the judge took off his robe, came down from behind the bench, not only went to the side of the guilty and became their advocate, their lawyer, but when they were punished for being guilty, he said, I'll do the time. I'll pay the price for them. Yeah, they're guilty. That's well established. Don't punish them, though. Punish me instead. Which is exactly what Jesus has done. One passage that speaks clearly to this, Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, on that Friday of the week of passion, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ dying for us, saved by him, Christ, from the wrath of God, because he absorbed God's wrath. For us. He absorbed it for us. The godly one dying for the ungodly. The righteous one dying for the unrighteous. This is the cup in baptism Jesus is referring to in verses 38-39 in this passage. Cup in this context throughout the Old Testament refers to the, the wrath of God. Drinking the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath being poured out. Baptism carries this idea of being immersed In this wrath, Jesus was caught up in the flood, the river, the torrent of the wrath of God for us. And Jesus asked his disciples, can you drink this cup and be baptized? And the answer is obviously no. And even though they said we're able and Jesus says you will, he's not referring to what he does. He is referring to what they will experience, but what he does, only he could do because only he was perfect and could be received as a spotless sacrifice. Only he could fully satisfy the wrath of God. And we can't even begin to imagine what drinking that cup was like for Jesus. We just can't go there. We know Jesus was in the garden and he prayed that there's any way to let this cup pass. There's any way out of this. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. We know the stress from what he was about to face was enough to cause him to sweat 
blood. I doubt anyone in here or anyone we know has ever sweated blood. A medical condition caused by such shock and anxiety that capillaries will burst and blood will go through the pores of your skin. And he knew what was coming. He knew that's why he came. And the shock and the stress of what he was about to experience, drinking down the wrath of God, caused him to sweat blood. One author put it like this, God the Father set the cup down in front of the Son in the garden, garden, and the Son knew. He had to drink the wrath of His Father for us. Because God is just and sin has to be punished, and because God is loving, He lovingly did this. This is why He came, to pay this price to set us free. Us. Us. The guilty, the condemned, the rebels. We made all of this necessary. I mean, think about how sinful we are. We are the only part of creation that dares to shake our fist in the face of our creator and say, no, my will be done. You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. I want my way. I know best. I'm smarter. I can do this. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. We make plans and we expect them to work out. And when they don't work out, we get mad. I deserve this. Look at all I've done for you. We get anxious. We get afraid. We, we live trying to protect ourselves from being hurt. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. When we find others who are better than us, we despair. We find others who are worse than us, we get puffed up. At least I'm not like that. We love people enough to get them to think that we're a good person, but we don't love them enough to deal with the mess of their life in far tangible and intangible ways. We keep them at arm's length. We find far greater joy. We're much more excited about the newest Marvel movie trailer or the newest series to drop on Netflix than we are God's word and spending time with the God who created us in prayer and communion. We're great at loving people who love us back, but we struggle with loving those who are hard to love and especially our enemies who hurt us intentionally. We have genuine fears about how we're doing in life, fears of failure, fears of the future, fears of people's opinions of us, fears of being known, and we mask and we hide those fears with anger and insecurities and coping mechanisms. We are truly made happy by anything and anyone more than Jesus. And frankly, for a lot of people, if they could have a guaranteed income that would meet all of their needs and have a little extra money for vacations and fun times, if they could be guaranteed their family would be safe and healthy the rest of their days, then Jesus is optional. Jesus would be optional for a lot of people. Just keep my belly full. Keep my bills paid. Keep my Wi-Fi working. Keep my family healthy and safe. And you can have Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not central to their joy and happiness. Their jobs are central to their joy and happiness. Our money, our families, our pursuit of pleasure, our spouses, our boyfriends, our girlfriends... All of that matters more than having Jesus as the source of our joy and hope. We 
are incredibly sinful. Like, feel the weight of that. Don't fall into the trap to make sin too little. We, we are quick to proclaim grace and the gospel in, in the Crossing Church, and we should be, but not to the extent that we don't feel the weight of our sin. Where sin just becomes, kind of becomes a, a secondary habit in your life. Where there aren't times where you're broken over your sin and confessing of your sin and thinking through just how sinful we are. If we make light of our sin, if our sins are too light, we will not worship Jesus for the price that he paid to redeem us. Yet your sins can become too big, so you're also enslaved. But probably in this room, we have a tendency to make them too light. And Jesus left the worship and the glory of heaven and came here as a baby who needed his diaper changed, who needed to be fed by his mother, who needed to be instructed by his father. The God who created the heavens and the earth had to be taught as a young child and grew up in poverty without the worship and fame and adoration of the people around him that he created. And then began this ministry where he would demonstrate God's love, God's truth, God's compassion, God's grace, God's holiness and righteousness, like it's never been demonstrated. And at the end, he didn't have the applause of everybody. He got a cross because he willingly chose that so he could redeem us. Us. There's not a single thing in us that makes us worthy of that gift. Not a single thing. Other than that, we're created in the image of God. That's it. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. All sinners, as sinners, all we have earned is death. That's the wages we've earned. That's the paycheck that we get. And he said, no, I'll cash that paycheck. You go free. You live. There's an old hymn. I'd never heard until I began pastoring in the first church I pastored called Lead Me to Calvary. And the course goes like this. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. We need to constantly be going to Calvary to see our crucified Savior. This, this is why Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ." crucified. The cross is essential to who we are because it's where Jesus accomplished our freedom, our victory. The reason we do communion every single week is so we will get punched in the gut of our soul with the reality that we are amazingly sinful and he is amazingly loving to give his life and his blood to redeem us, to make us his people. Some struggle with the why of Jesus' death because the cross is offensive. It's so old-fashioned and bloody and ridiculous, it seems. We've, I hope, progressed beyond that. Or we think we've progressed beyond that. Why is it so essential? That's one danger. 
And I hope and pray this morning you see the necessity of the cross. But the second danger, and maybe more prone for us in here, is to have this intellectual knowledge of the cross without it affecting our everyday life. Give me the penal substitutionary atonement test. I can pass that. Check, check, check. I can give you verses and scriptures. I know all the answers to the questions. While we live as slaves to sin. While we live in bondage to sin. I'm free? What are you talking about? I had a beer the other night at Enoch's. Look how free I am. If you think that's all freedom is, and it's not also giving up that right for the good of your brother, not begrudgingly, but in love and joy, Titus, or rather, imagine a person who gives their life for you. Imagine a person who sacrifices themselves for your life. You know, they pull you out of a burning pile of metal in a car accident. They jump in front of a bus. I mean, whatever you want to imagine this person does to save your life, they do it. You live, you're fine. This person is, for the rest of their life, bedridden, incapacitated. And you go see this person. And you love this person. You're overwhelmed with gratitude for this person. Like, what would you do if this person asked you to do something for them? They gave their life. They gave up their freedom. They gave up their physical abilities so that you could go free. Sacrifice themselves for you. And they're asking you to do something for them. You would willingly, lovingly, with joy and gratitude say, yes, whatever you need. Because I am so grateful for what you've done for me. In a much greater way, that's our response to Jesus. Look at what he's done for us. Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to redeem us and to make us a people who are zealous for good works. So because of Jesus giving his life for us, we are free to be zealous for good works. So what should those good works be? Well, you, I mean, you can go all through the New Testament and talk about good works that we produce, but let's look at the ones from the passage. All of these are good works demonstrated by Jesus. Number one, we have been freed to be submissive to the Father's will. We've been free to be submissive to the Father's will. Verse 32 has Jesus leading his disciples to Jerusalem. They are heading up from the surrounding area of Judea. It's not a long trip. We are just days away from his triumphal entry, his week of passion. And Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to face his death. And he's leading his followers. He's not, uh, they're not dragging him to Jerusalem because he knows what's coming. Come on, you got to do this, Jesus. You told us this is coming. Come on, do, follow through. He's not a prisoner who's walking around with his head down in shame. He's leading the way, going to Jerusalem. This is what I have to do. Completely submissive to his Father's will. And Jesus, uh, they're uncertain, it says, that they're amazed and they're in fear. They're kind of shook up, discombobulated. And Jesus is heading there knowing what's coming. Verse 33 and 34. He says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the third of these passion predictions that Jesus has given. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. And this last one has the most detail, incredible detail, in fact. Submission to the Father's will. As we learn in Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that was going to happen to Jesus was according to the plan and purposes of the will of God. And here's Jesus leading his disciples to this bloody cross, completely submissive to the will of his Father. In fact, you see more of a picture of this, much more subtle but very real in verse 40, where he says, To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What do you mean it's not yours to grant? You're Jesus. You can do whatever you want. And in that comment, you see submission within the triune Godhead. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. One God, Father, Son, Spirit. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. One God in three persons. One God completely distinct in those three persons. The Son submitting, you see this throughout the Gospels, the Son submitting to the will of the Father about whom it has been prepared to sit on his right and left. Father, let this cup pass. Not my will, but your will be done. I only do the work of my Father. All through the Gospels, you see the Son submitting to the will of the Father. Because Jesus died for us and set us free, we are free to submit to the gracious will of the Father in every single area of our life. To follow Him wherever He takes us. It's not that we know what's coming. We don't. Jesus did, but we don't. But he does just like Jesus did, and we trust him. He knows where we're going. Okay, you're the boss. Wherever you go, I'm I'm coming with you. This is the posture of humility. This is the posture of a child. This is the posture of a disciple of Jesus. Wherever you lead, I will go. And guys, it's not just that we trust him with the direction of our life, where we're going. We trust him with the timing in our life. When things happen. Jesus was always headed to Jerusalem. His entire life was going in that direction. But not until the fullness of time came. Was he crucified and killed the week of Passover? In fact, what you find out in the Gospels is is that while they were sacrificing lambs for the Passover offering, the Lamb of the world was the Lamb of God was on the cross dying for the sins of the world at the same exact time. Oh, what a coincidence. No, not a coincidence. Intended by God. And you can trust him with the details, not just the timing, but the details. Like all these details Jesus predicted. Like you can't make all this stuff just happen to yourself. How do you make someone flog flog you? How do you make someone spit on you? There are dozens and some say hundreds of details about the life of the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. All of them written a minimum 400 years before Jesus arrived as a baby, where he would be born, that he would go to Egypt for a season as a young child, the fact he would be betrayed with a kiss, 
how they would cast lots for his clothes when he died, the fact his bones would not be broken. They would give him vinegar to drink, and on and on. Many details Jesus could not have made happen by himself, yet every single one of them fulfilled perfectly. It would be like sitting down today and writing a, a list of dozens of qualities about the President of the United States five, six, seven hundred years from now. We don't even know if there's going to be a United States in 500 years. How can you possibly predict qualities of this person's life, where he or she or it, it maybe a robot by then, where they're born and, and how they were treated by different people and where they grew up? There's no way to do that. Yet that was done by God because he's sovereign over every single aspect of our lives, over every single aspect of Jesus' life. Guys, you have a father in heaven who says he provides everything for the birds. The birds. Are you not much more valuable than they? He closes, he closes the grass of the field. He cares about that. How much more does he care about you? He knows when every single sparrow, the most obscure, meaningless, cheapest bird there was in that season, that time, that, that culture. He knows when every single one falls to the ground and dies. How much more does he know about you? He knows every single hair on your head. Some of us help him out. Give him, give him less to count. Some of you make it harder for God with all your luscious, curly, thick hair. Whatever. However many it is, he knows. He knows every hair on your head, which means he knows when they fall out and when they grow in. He calls every star by name. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? Just a, a few months ago, they, they come out and said, you know what, we were wrong about how many galaxies there are. There's trillions more than we even thought there were. And every galaxy has millions upon millions of stars. God calls them by name. How much more valuable are you than a, a ball of burning gas? And you are set free to trust him and follow him and know that he has your future in his loving, gracious hand. Your life, the rest of your college career, your jobs, where you will live, who you will marry, or if you'll be married, every child that he gives you, your spouse, their futures, your health, your house, your cars, your relationships, what cities he will live in, what church you will be part of, every single aspect of your life, he's got it. And there's no one more trustworthy than him. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Whatever you need to obey his will in your life, to accomplish his purposes for your life, he will freely give it to you. And often, because he's a good dad, he gives you more than you need. If you're struggling with that, if you haven't experienced that in your life, Talk, talk to people who walk with Jesus longer. Because we can, we can tell you testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness. To give you everything you need. Secondly, 
We are set free to be gracious and humble with each other. Not just free to submit to the will of our Father, but set free to be gracious and humble with each other. See this in how Jesus treats his disciples. He's leading them to Jerusalem, and the text says they're following him in amazement and fear. Verse 32. Just kind of unsure of who he is. Kind of discombobulated, like kids who are just kind of dumbfounded, just going along. Where The guy's in charge. He's leading us. So we just better follow him, even though we're kind of confused about what in the world's happening here. And then in this context, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He says, this is where we're going. This is what's coming. And then you have this amazing exchange between Jesus and two of his closest disciples. So Peter, James, and John, they're the inner circle. They're the guys who are closest to him. They saw things that no other disciples saw. And two of them, James and John, come and make this amazing request, beginning in verse 35. Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were, began to be indignant at James and John. Now, if you've been a parent long enough, or when you're a parent long enough, your kids will come to you, and they'll get to an age where they will ask you something like this. Dad, whatever I say, just say yes. And, and when it first happens, you know, they're just young and being cute, and they're just trying to figure out how does this whole request get what I want kind of thing work. But it's amazing because they really think you were born yesterday and that they've, they've unlocked the secret to get the treasures of mom and dad. If I ask like this, they won't see it coming. They'll just say yes, and I'll just have a blank check to do it and get whatever I want, right? Then they get a little older, and they come to you, and they begin to ask something like that. Just whatever I ask, just say yes, and it's kind of like this, like they really believe that the, the future of the universe depends on me saying yes to whatever they're asking. And so there's this earnestness to it. And then, and then as they get older and progress, they begin to learn, and they trust you, and they know you. So they're like, it doesn't really matter how I ask, I'm going to get the same answer. So I just do it to be funny. And it's all cute and funny throughout. You kind of play along with it sometimes, and, you know, it's, it, it's just the fun part of being a parent. And so you have this question of James and John, which smacks of immaturity. Whatever we ask, just, just say yes, Jesus. And Jesus is, is so gracious. Man, he's so humble. What do you want me to do for you? Now, the same question will be asked by Jesus next Sunday in the next story with a different answer. But here, they say, let us sit by you in your glory. Now, one aspect of this request is good. They know that he is headed for glory. They get that. He is the Messiah, and at some point he will sit and reign in glory. In fact, Jesus had already told them, Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Chronologically, that just happened right before this request. But for James and John, that's not enough. We don't want just one of the twelve. We want the two most prominent thrones right next to you and so in a very arrogant and sick way we want you to have glory jesus we know it's coming but we want to have some of it too by sitting closest to you like we really want you to succeed to look great 
so we'll look great with you. Incredibly audacious and naked in its lack of shame. And ironically, Jesus would soon be in his glory, but not what they were expecting. On the cross, he would be most glorious, and there would be one on his right and on his left. Drinking the cup in the baptism. Jesus realized this in this question of the cup and baptism. They still don't get what's coming. Will you drink this cup and this baptism? Yeah, we can do that. You have no idea what I'm about to go through. Okay, you'll drink it. You and the rest of the 12, you will suffer a martyr's death and suffer for Jesus, but not in the same way Jesus would suffer. And then it tells us in verse uh, 41 that the other 10 were indignant with James and John. We've already seen them arguing about who is the greatest. So they're not like righteous indignation, like how dare they ask Jesus that question. It's, why didn't we think of that first? These guys got ahead of us. Because we all want to be the greatest. They don't realize that James and John have an alliance. And when you're on these kinds of shows, you have to have an alliance if you're going to succeed. But they see Jesus serving them and being so gracious and humble with them and their lack of understanding. Like Jesus never freaks out. He doesn't go off on them or yell at them for being so dumb. He's letting them mature and progress in God's timing, empowered by God's spirit. He's not panicking like, guys, don't you know, like in a few months it's going to be Pentecost and the church is going to be born. Why are you still asking these stupid questions? He's, he's relaxed. It's going to be all right. God's in charge of this. Jesus died so we would be free to be gracious and humble with each other and our immature Silly, dumb, idiotic, idiotic, ridiculous, well-intentioned, sometimes hurtful things that we do to each other. How do you know you're lacking in grace and humility with fellow disciples? When you get angry with each other over our sins and mistakes. If you look down on them for their choices and decisions and convictions... If you can't freely, willfully, joyfully love and serve them. If you see them and in any way you elevate yourself and your heart above them. Being gracious and humble and getting low is getting low enough to lift others up. Not placing yourself high so you can look down. Like isn't that when we're most tempted to not be gracious and humble with each other? When we mess up? When we make mistakes, when we sin, or we make choices we don't agree with. Like if you are quick to criticize or quick to pounce, recognize that is not how Jesus treats his immature and growing disciples. If you're quick to put yourself in the mature category and everyone else in the immature category, again, Jesus died to set you free from that pride and arrogance. Grace gives the benefit of the doubt to each other. Grace, humility is not quick to criticize, but quick to listen and understand. Grace assumes the best because by God's grace, we see where we're all headed. We're all headed to maturity, being made like Jesus. And so grace and humility allows us to see each other as God sees us, not our sins, Not our mistakes, not our differences, but as family, growing and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. And and grace recognizes that I can't fix you, I can't change you. 
Only the Spirit of God can truly bring the change in you that will actually change you. And so I give time and I give space for the Spirit to work. And I don't try to do the work of the Spirit of God myself. There is a place for confrontation and rebuke. But it's always marked by humility and grace because I see my sins much easier and much bigger than I see your sins. That is showing grace and humility to each other. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How can we possibly do that? How can we possibly do that? Guys, the more we do that, the more we will be incredibly attractive to our city, to our neighborhoods, to our jobs. The more that that is us as a community, the more we will be like this insatiable hunger. Like, how is this possible? How is it possible? Keep reading. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life flowing through us is how we do that. And he sets us free to do it. Lastly, he sets us free to be humbled and great in serving one another. Verse 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who consider considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reveals that in God's kingdom, it's not like the world system where power, control, rule, and dominate. And he says emphatically, it shall not be so with you. In other words, if you're going to serve others by trying to control them or dominate them, you are totally on the outside of his kingdom. That is the system of the world. That's not how God's kingdom works. The way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom is lowly service, sacrifice, a slave for the good of others. This is the entire ministry of Jesus. This is where uh, you see it here in this passage, how he's treating his disciples. You're going to see it in a few hours from now. If you know the the, the chronology of the Gospels, when uh, he does the lowliest task imaginable by washing their disgusting feet, the task for the lowliest slave in the household. This is us and how we treat each others. This is us and how we treat Jesus in how we treat the least of these, Matthew 25 tells us. Of visiting the sick and those in prison. Of feeding those who are hungry. By giving water to those who are thirsty. By uh, clothing those who are naked. Jesus says, when you do that for the least of these, you're doing that for me. What we have to be careful of, though, is that we don't turn this into a kind of another religion. Like, well, look at my lowly service, God. Look at all the great lowly things I'm doing, the way I'm serving others. Look how great I am. Like if that's truly the motivation of your heart, then those acts of service will get old quick. Because if you're doing it for the applause of others, you will never get enough applause that you think you deserve. 
Ever. You'll get burned out and you'll want to quit. It's amazingly how sinful we are that we would even turn acts of service into ways to glorify ourselves. But if we're done, if they're done with the right motivations, the right heart, it leads to true joy, deep abiding joy and happiness. Like even non-Christians recognize this. In a Tim Keller sermon on this passage, he talks about an article in the New York Times where people studied how, how we are happy. How do we make ourselves happy? And people think, well, I've got to pursue things that make me happy. Do things that make me happy. So I'm going to eat, I'm going to watch, I'm going to veg, I'm going to play sports. I mean, whatever it is that makes you happy. And what they found is that chasing pleasure does not actually bring happiness because you've got to chase more and more pleasure to get the same amount of happiness. It's like a drug you're addicted to. You've got to have more of the same drug to get the same high. And what these researchers who aren't Christian found aren't Christians, they found, is that true happiness comes from doing kind acts for other people. Ah, that's the way God made us. Imagine that. If they're done in a way that is unselfish and for their good, flowing from a heart that has received much and can freely give much. That's the final thing I want to draw your attention to. The only way this life of grace, humility, submission joyfully serving others. The only way this marks your life is when you are first served by Christ. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For each of us, that begins with us. The first person Jesus needs to serve is you. The first person you need to allow it to serve you is Jesus in his death, paying the ransom to set you free. Like if you look at your life this morning, you're filled with guilt and shame because you're like, my life is not marked by this kind of humility and service. See that Jesus has come to serve you by dying for your sins to set you free so you can willingly, freely, lovingly, joyfully give your life away to serve others. And to empower that by His Spirit to make it possible. Let Him wash you. Let Him cleanse you. Let Him change you and fill you with Himself so that can be your life. If you're sitting here this morning and you're full of pride at how well you do this. I'm such a humble servant. Don't you all know He's been talking about me the whole time? Jesus again needs to serve you and remind you that He died to set you free from your pride and arrogance. And the only good you will do for his glory will be done in humility and lowliness. So respond today in repentance and faith in Jesus. See who Jesus is. See what Jesus has done. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all of us. Father, we thank you so much. But this is the reality of the gospel. This message that has been proclaimed for thousands of years to millions upon millions of people is still here today in power. So do work in us today that only you can do to change us and make us this kind of people. Thank you, Jesus, giving your life so we could be free. In your name we pray.
Amen. We're going to have an opportunity for you to respond.